For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? Happy Juneteenth, happy Pride, happy Monday, happy Albert Poland, happy Stevie Phillips, happy everything. I am so excited about today's show because I get to sit down and celebrate an incredible woman that I'm getting the chance to know through her amazing book, uh, Judy and Liza and Freddie and David and Sue and me, uh, but it's the me that I am the most fascinated with, and that's Stevie Phillips. Uh, I had the good fortune, uh, a very dear mutual friend of ours is Albert Poland, and I had Albert Poland on the show again uh, just a few weeks ago, and we were talking, and he was telling me about uh, Stevie's book, which I was familiar with, but I had not read it until recently, and he said, I think she would like to come on the show, and I said, I would love to have her, and I'll tell you something, and I said this to you before, Stevie, I reached out to Stevie via email. But rather than responding with an email, she responded with a phone call. And all of you who follow my show, you know what that means to me. So Stevie, you have already moved to the top of the totem pole on my uh, hierarchy of uh, the way things should be. Thank you. And I'm thrilled that you're here today. I'm so delighted to be here, Richard. It's nice to meet you. I heard about you from Albert. Uh, he spoke about you with great admiration. He finds you extraordinarily charming. I can't wait to see what we're going to talk about. <laughs> well, I want to start with talking about you. I know that there's so much to digest in your book. Uh, uh, you've had this amazing career. Uh, before today's show, I was interviewed by my dear friend, Robert Bannon. And one of the things that I always like to go back to, and it's very interesting, as I was reading your book, I always ask my guests for a photo of them at five years of age. <laughs> <laughs> but at the very beginning of your book, you said there are no photographs of you around that uh, time frame. Uh, tell everybody, and it's in the book, a little bit about your uh, upbringing and your early, early years. Um, there aren't too many people uh, who can boast about being on the knee of uh, uh, sitting next to Charlie McCarthy at a very, at three years of age. Well, the truth of the matter is that while that happened on a Sunday, and I got lucky with that, Sunday was the only day of the week in which I saw my parents until I was a teenager. I had a regrettable, a very sad childhood. Um, I understood that it was sad as early as the age of seven or eight, because by then I had friends and they had parents who were around. They had breakfast with mommy and they had dinner with daddy and they went places during the week and their parents went to school for meetings and none of that happened with me. 
And I understood that it was different. Of course, as I got older, I understood the differences in a different way. But something wonderful happened to me in the midst of all of that. Um, I got 25 cents every Saturday to go to a movie by the time I was eight. And the first movie I went to changed my life. I saw Judy Garland in Meet Me in St. Louis playing the role of Esther Smith, who had the most loving family that anybody could ever dream of. But it wasn't just that that got me. It was the fact that I was watching something on the screen that I wanted to cross over and enter. And from that moment on, I knew at eight, I would be in show business. Well, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the book, you know, not only was this this world that you wanted to be a part of, you you describe in detail. You're such a great writer, Stevie, by the way. Uh, you describe the the, the hair and uh, the tech, you know, the look of the hair and wanting to have those uh, long tresses and the, uh, you know, and I also, believe it or not, uh, I grew up in a household um which was very volatile. Uh, I grew up in an alcoholic household. Uh, my father, uh, every weekend, uh, was a very interesting world to be in. Uh, and there are many things that as I was reading your book, uh, it triggered a lot of memories uh, from my childhood. Um, and uh, for better and for worse, uh, you took me down memory lane with a lot of things. Um, but it's interesting when you grow up in that type of an environment, sometimes these things, you know, it's like a magnet that we bring into our lives as we go through life. You wanted to be in show business. Interestingly enough, your first big memory of a film being Meet Me in St. Louis, and there's an old adage, be careful about wanting to meet your idols because they may not live up to what you expect them to be. And that was absolutely the case in your world because you worked with side by side with Judy Garland. Uh, my memories about Judy are filled with moments of glory, moments of glory moments of sadness, moments of tragedy, moments that there is no way to get rid of, be they good or bad, they dominate my existence to this very day. There were times in my life when I really had trouble um, looking at things that were normal because my vision had been so corrupted by so much sadness. On the other hand, um, having endured that, I knew it taught me a lot. And I knew that there was nothing that I couldn't face that I couldn't deal with. 
And so there is the good side and the bad side. Judy was amazing. There is nobody to this day, as far as I'm concerned, that is the same when the same on any stage in America or anybody else in the world. Judy had suffered an amazing amount of things in her life, and she was able to trade on that in every performance. It was a part of the sad song she was singing. It was a part of the happy songs that she celebrated. Her appearances were so dynamic and so well understood by an audience that like many audiences, they went crazy. But in Judy's case, in particular, there was always a rather large gay audience and they survived because of her. They enjoyed delight because of her. They knew that they were understood because of her. And so very often they dominated an audience. I can't even start to tell you how amazing she was on stage. And I've had the privilege of seeing so many great entertainers and they are great, but nobody adds up to Judy. You, you say in the book that the one thing that she taught you uh, was to never fold. Can you take us back to what you is what that means for you? Uh, because uh, obviously you got through this period. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was a four-year period that you were with Judy. Uh, yeah. That you said that she never, uh, never to fold, and that she was one of the greatest teachers that you ever had. No question about that. In order to tell you more about that, I have to kind of walk you through some of the tragic moments that I had with her. Well, before we get there, may we back up for just a little bit? Do you mind if I take you back a little bit and then we'll go there? I want to ask you, when you sat down to write this book, um, and kudos because it's an incredibly revealing book, um, what was your impetus to write the book in the first place? Uh, and, uh, and I applaud you for writing this book. Well, I thought that it would make my life easier to tell the story. I could then put it behind me. It dominated my life. It dominated everything that I did. I looked at things that I was confronted and went back to Judy all the time, there was a point at which I had to stop doing it and it didn't come easy. It took a long time. Um, where I live is in Manhattan, close to Central Park. And I would be on the bus going down Fifth Avenue just in the normal course of business. And I would pass by the Plaza Hotel and I would see Judy on one of those fenced windows way up at the top wanting to jump. I mean, it was not possible for me to go on a bus down Fifth Avenue for years 
without seeing that. But that finally took place. And writing the book was a big part of that. Uh, when what uh, when you first started set to, out to write the book, I mean, it, it was a cathartic. Was it cathartic for you or was it a painful experience going back and reliving these moments, uh, which are harrowing moments that you experienced with her? I thought that going back and putting them down on paper and having to relive them would allow me to put them behind me. And it did. It did. I can talk about it now without the remorse that I had talking about it 10 years ago. Um, for instance, is it okay for me to tell one of these stories? I'd love for you to tell these stories, but I want to, before we get to the stories, um, tell everyone about how you and Judy met and where she was in terms of her career or to be more honest, her lack of career because she was really at one of those pivotal moments where she was making, as many people know about her, she was making yet another comeback. So let's go there and then we'll go into some of these stories that you tell okay. Um I graduated from college and was unemployable. I had to go to secretarial school to learn stenography and to learn how to type. And then I went to an employment agency and told them, I want to work in show business. Send me to places where I can work in show business. And they sent me to a company called Music Corporation of America, which was on Madison Avenue in a heavy, busy district. And it was a talent agency a talent agency that represented Cary Grant and Gary Cooper and Marilyn Monroe and names from our past that are total, totally glorious. And I loved being there. I was a temp. I was sent from desk to desk wherever there was a secretary who was absent or on vacation. And it, I wasn't there many months before I was sent into an office with two sharks by the name of Freddie Fields and David Beagleman. Um, Freddie had been raised in the Catskills. He knew everything about show business. He thought that there was to know. He was married to Polly Bergen and he was sharp. He dressed sharp and he spoke sharp. He had jokes for everything. He was totally delightful. Uh, David Beagleman was his exact opposite. Uh, he was severe, intellectual. Um, he had a word for everything. He was elegant. Um, and he could be very nasty. They made a terrific pair. They really were. And they kind of liked me, which was very fortunate for me. 
because when they had an important phone call with an important film star in Hollywood, guess who was sitting on the line listening? Mm. It was a privilege that they allowed me to have. And I was in dreamland. Um, when all of a sudden I learned that MCA was being examined in Washington for antitrust in as much as they were getting commissions from too many places. And let me go back for a moment and tell you that Lou Wasserman, uh, an extraordinary man, even at that point, although I didn't know him all that well until later, um, was a great businessman, mm -hmm. loved entertainment as much as I, and went out and bought Universal Studios. Now he owned MCA, the agency. He owned Universal Studios, the film company. And he was collecting commissions from too many places for too many people. Um, and Washington didn't like it and told Mr. Wasserman that he would have to choose one or the other. He chose Universal Studios. And the day that that choice was made was the day that the agency closed. And Freddie Fields and David Beagleman, smart as they were, knew that this was coming. And they went out and got a beautiful office for themselves on Park Avenue, which they could well afford to do. They had one of New York's best decorators uh, set it up, and it was gorgeous. And they were in business. Freddie, of course, as I mentioned, was married to Polly Bergen, but he also represented Phil Silvers, who was a big star at that point and starring on Broadway. Um, and he knew everybody. And these two hustlers were going to build the Tiffany of agents, agencies. They were going to sign the Blue Bloods the biggest stars, they were going to have a Tiffany operation. And the day that they knew that, they came to me and said, we would like you to be our secretary. And I said, but you have one. And they said, but she's fully uh, invested in the pension plan at Universal and she's going to go with Universal. Uh, and they offered to double my salary, which was $65.90, somewhere around there. Wow. Um, and now I was going to be making $125, and I would have gone anywhere with them. I was married at that point, and having that kind of money was outrageously marvelous. And so, of course, I said yes. It wasn't long before Freddie decided what he had to do was give Judy Garland to come back. Mm -hmm. She was in London in a walk up in a 
not fancy neighborhood at all. I wouldn't call it a bad neighborhood, but it certainly was not one that would attract attention. And a walk-up. was eating her way to um, a bad outcome. Couldn't get $500 to do a concert for anybody. And Freddie promised her the world and brought her back to New York. From there, uh, my life really started. Uh, she came into the office with Liza and Lorna and Joe. And Freddie, I was sitting at my desk in the reception area where she was standing with Freddie and David. And Freddie said, come on over here, Stevie. And so I walked over. And he introduced me as the girl who can take care of everything. And Judy Collin looked me over and said, you're the first person I ever met who can take care of everything. Hmm. And then uh, they paraded into Freddie's office and he pressed an electric button that closed the drapes and I couldn't see anything. But that was the start of it all. Well, may I ask a question? Uh, you... Um at, at one time, you mentioned earlier that you were on these phone calls. You were a part of this. Why do you feel at that moment when they obviously had brought you in, at that moment when they took her into that office? And I remember reading this in the book, and I questioned this also in the book, that they closed the curtains and you couldn't see or hear anything. Why do you think that you were shut out at that moment? I don't think that I was shut out. I think it was that they wanted to make Judy feel important. And so the best thing to do was kind of create an aura okay. of privacy. Freddie loved pressing the button and seeing those drapes mechanically close. It was his show off thing. Okay. Um, and he couldn't do that with me there, you know, but um, then comes the downside to all of this, which is that after Judy had checked into the Drake Hotel and the kids went, the young kids went back, well, all of the kids went back to Sid, Judy was alone. And that was not a place that she could ever be. And so her answer to that was to keep either Freddie or David on the phone all day long, all night long. One got the impression that this was a star that never slept sleep was not a part of her picture. And Freddie and David knew, having been on the phone with her at three in the morning, at four in the morning, this was not acceptable to their wives and ultimately was unacceptable to them. And they knew that there was no way that they could be on the road with her and survive their marriages, 
or survive a career. And so um, they decided that the young woman who could take care of everything was the best candidate to go. And well, in addition to you being that woman who could take care of everything, uh, David, uh, and you really paint this picture of what this man was truly despicable man that he was. Um, he also played into Judy's uh, downfall and, uh, and uh, crossed the line with her many, many times. You're talking about David. No, David. Oh, David. Well, let me start with the fact that David loves sex. Period. End of that sentence. Yes. And he couldn't resist it. It was important for him to learn how attractive he was, which he was not. Which he was not. By having a number of women say yes to him. That Judy Garland said yes to him was the best thing that ever happened to him, perhaps, until he understood it was the worst thing that ever happened to him. But he was having an affair with somebody who was enduring an amazing comeback. I mean, Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall turned the heads of everybody in the entertainment business. No question about that. And there was David. But David learned the hard way that dealing with Judy and promising to marry her, which he had no intention whatsoever of doing, and lying to her uh, and not showing up when he was supposed to and saying things that he couldn't provide turned her into a sad, unhappy, um, somebody, somebody who wanted to commit suicide every day of the week. And pretty much that was what started to happen. Yeah. Um, I learned how to run Judy Garland's concerts in one glorious episode. Freddie took me with him. He showed me how to, uh, how the stage had to be set up. He showed me how it had to be decorated. He showed me how the music, what the music board was. He showed me the levels that the music had to be on. He showed me how to listen to it. He showed me the lighting plot. I watched him do it one day. The next day it was mine. I was running the show. Wow. I thought Judy would be crazy. I thought that she would refuse to go on if I was the, the only person up there. And indeed she did. 
And I said to her, Judy, there's no such thing as a comeback, which is what you're going through now by somebody who refuses to go on. Please go on the stage tonight and all the wonderful things you want to happen will happen in, in due time. And indeed, she went on and thereafter it was fine for me to run it. But within that period of time, there were many things that happened because of David Beagleman that made her not want to go on. And many times because of David Beagleman that she did terrible things, which included slitting her wrist, mm -hmm. overdosing, um, going completely crazy, getting lost, being able to be found. I mean, what I endured and what Freddie and David consequently endured because of I, the fact that I was enduring it was unendurable. Uh, you, the, you know, I want to talk about one uh, specific incident, uh, your chapter on uh, her appearance in Boston. And uh, yeah, I was as I was reading this chapter, and I had to read it again because it was just so harrowing. Um, and the fact that she went on that night and had such an amazing uh, performance, uh, unbelievable. And but what you were put through that night, uh, I yeah, how I mean the emotional toll that it took on you. How did you deal with, uh, did, I mean, did you shut off emotionally at that time from your own emotions of what you were going through? What got you through these episodes? Well, I, I couldn't shut them out. It took a terrific toll on me. There's no question about that. Um, and I was more often than not the one that needed to take the action, that needed to take her to the hospital, that needed to put her in a limousine and drive her down to Mount Sinai, that needed to walk with her if I thought that she wasn't going to die and I could walk her around the room several times and then out in the hall several times. I went through one suicide attempt after another. I can only tell you that I did it because she was also amazing and wonderful and loving. There was that Judy and there was the Judy that was unkind and mean um, if she wasn't getting everything she wanted the moment she wanted it. There was that Judy. And then there was the Judy that was miserable. The Judy, well, I described in my book the Judy that I knew the best. And that was a Judy who believed that 50% of her was missing. And that 50% could only provided, be provided by a man who loved her. Mm -hmm. And so... There was Judy uh, in Boston, and the man who loved her was not in the room with her at that moment. 
the man who loved her got to Boston, but he had given her a hard time seeing her before Boston. And so she was going to make him pay for that. And I stood there in the room with her, dressed to the nines, which was never the case before a concert. Beautiful black suit, her hair all done. It was something that she had planned on very carefully, having the hairdresser come in early. I may back you know, Norm, I mean, she asked you to come to the hotel. She, it, rather than going to the theater, uh, and so this was all calculated on her part. It was all calculated, and I stood there saying, Judy, you look terrific, and she stood up and took the razor she was holding and slit her wrist. Now, obviously, I had never been in a room with anybody who did that before or since, um, I didn't know what happened when you cut an artery, but I know very well now. Mm. The blood was all over me. The blood was all over the bedspread. The blood was all over the flocked wallpaper. It was a disaster. It was, oh my God. I can relive it at this moment and get the chills. I ran into the bathroom. I got a bath towel and with a hairbrush, I fashioned a kind of tourniquet that would at least be on top of the bleeding, not allow it to go all over the room, hopefully stop it or slow it or something got on the phone with David, who was a couple of rooms down the hall, and said, come here immediately. He heard that in my voice. There was no mistaking it. He was in the room within seconds, and he saw what happened. Um, and he helped with the blood and everything like that and got on the phone and got a doctor there as fast as he could. Well, there was the man that she loved. It was okay to perform. It's hard to believe that, but there was an hour between what when that happened and the time that the curtain went up, so to speak. And in that in that hour, I was given a hundred bucks, and I ran downstairs. And I started running through the streets and ran into every shop I could where I thought I could buy something that would hide her wrist. And I bought as many pieces of junk jewelry as I could. And I brought them back to the hotel. Unbelievable. And she went on that night and she killed. She killed. I mean, every night was standing ovations. Every night was people running down the aisles like crazy, hoping to touch the hem of her dress, a shoe, hoping to be recognized. There were a couple that she would shake hands with every now and then as she moved across the stage, she'd grab a hand. Um, they all wanted her hand. They all wanted her. You tell another episode uh, in the book uh, of her being booked in, uh, you know, I'm an entertainer myself. 
and uh, and I have been booked in some pretty sleazy places. Uh, but you tell it. There's a story in the book where she was booked in New Jersey uh, at probably one of the uh, filthiest, dirtiest places. <laughs> uh, as I'm reading this, I'm going. You know, at this point in her life, to be booked in this kind of a venue, uh, and uh, you know, and I can only imagine. You work your whole life in this business, and then to get booked into a venue like this, if you can take us there for a moment. Well, it was a very large, filthy, filthy venue. It was disgusting. It was a place where there was hockey, ice hockey. It was a place there was basketball. Um, and anybody who wore a jock strap met managed to leave it in the dressing room. The dressing room was beyond filthy. There was grime on the windows that had been there for 25 years without being touched. There were rats in the bathroom. I opened up the bathroom door. I saw a rat. I closed it before it could run where I was standing. I could not believe what I was seeing. Now, I'd like to give Freddie and David the credit of not knowing that. Hard for me to believe that they didn't know it was, if you'll excuse me, a shithole. I'd like to think that they didn't know. But it wasn't time to think about anything at all. I knew that I had to change whatever I could. Fortunately, we always had a limo. Fortunately, the driver stayed during the show so that he would take us back to the hotel. Fortunately, the driver that day, God bless him, was a great guy. Um, I said to the uh, promoter, how could you do this? He had no answer for me. He just stood there knowing that if I said we're not going on, that he would somehow or other manage to survive that. But in my view, Judy might not survive that. Judy with a reputation for not showing up. Bingo. Was not going to not show up that evening if there was anything that I could do to make the difference. And I had hours. Judy didn't even wake up. I mean, I was at the hall shortly at nine o'clock in the morning and inside shortly thereafter. So I had from nine until four when I could get even the first phone call. And it was from four until eight before she would be at the theater. And so I grabbed the limousine driver Thank God there was a five and 10 cent store in town. We went through that buying everything they had to offer in terms of creature comforts and decor. We took shower curtains, we took towels, we took boards that we could hide things behind. We took things, soaps and sprays and washcloths and and we came back and God bless him, he went to work with me and we started scrubbing. And in spite of all the scrubbing, there was no way that we could open the bathroom door. 
thank God I was able to buy like a Japanese screen behind which Judy could get dressed out of the stuff she arrived at the theater in into the stuff she was going on the stage with. Um, and somehow or other, um, we managed to get through it. Wow. You know, Eliza once said that, uh, you know, talking about the famous uh, Palladium concert, uh, that uh, she arrived at the theater being the daughter of Judy Garland. Uh, and then when she walked on stage, she was on stage with Judy Garland. But you had an experience. You appeared on stage with Judy Garland. <laughs> so as I was reading this in the book, that when she first approached you about doing a song with her, uh, did you take her seriously at that moment? Or did you think oh, this is just another one of her whims? Uh, I didn't think it was a whim. I thought, but I certainly didn't take it seriously. I thought it was something that she devised that would make all of the limousine rides we had more doable. I mean, we were in limousines on the way to the hall, on the way to the hotel, on the way to the airport, on the way to the restaurant, on the way. We lived in limousines. That wasn't a bad thing, but it was a boring thing. Um, and so she was quite enamored with the arrangement that her conductor, Mort Lindsay, had done for Julie Stein's song, Just In Time. Mm -hmm. Just In Time, I Found You Just In Time. It had 11 halftone key changes, which are impossible to do. Only Judy Garland could do that. Uh, but she threatened to bring me out on the stage to do it with her in the final concert. And I now can still do a halftone key change. <laughs> we'll get together sometime and we'll do it together. <laughs> but let me tell you of an incident that took place in the car, in one of those cars as we practiced. She put her hand on my knee. The, the car made a bit of a shortstop. And we were kind of jerked forward a little bit. And she put her hand on my knee, but she forgot to take it off. And as the car resumed normal running, her hand made its way up my leg and was on its way to my crotch. And I knew that Judy was making a pass at me. And I thought to myself, I mean, my eyes were wide in horror. This was not anything I wanted. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And finally, there was only one thing to do, and that was to take her hand and move it back into her lap, which I did, and she pretended nothing ever happened. Which and she, was and she never did that again, as you said in the book. But you know, it's interesting. You know, years ago, you know, I, I have a, a one man show, and uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I grew up in a household. You know, my father 
had, you know, these demons that took over him as well. And my sister was very afraid of what I would reveal or what I would tell and in terms of my story. And as I said earlier, I applaud you because I think it's very important for you to tell your story. I think it's very important for everyone to tell their story. And we, you know, and everyone, uh, you know, everyone loves Judy Garland from, you know, movies and concerts and televisions. I'm a huge Judy Garland fan as well. And, uh, and a lot of people, you know, years ago, I interviewed Christina Crawford and uh, I got hate mail uh, from people who said, how dare you write this book? What kind of response did you get after you wrote this book? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because it's an opportunity for me to fight back. <laughs> um, I had five reviews, as I recall. Four of them were from publishers, like Publishers Weekly. There were four different publishing kind of reviews, and they were all wonderful. And then there was the New York Times and the New York Times headline was so awful that I have just blotted it out. I don't want to remember it. It was ghastly. And the review was about as bad a review as any book could ever have. And the underlying thread in the review was who the fuck does she think she is? Who, who is this nobody who dares to talk about Judy Garland in that way? Dares to talk about Judy Garland in that way? I was telling the truth. Mm -hmm. But this was a woman, a reviewer, who did not want the truth to be told. And I still wonder about that from time to time. Do people want the truth or do they not want the truth? And the reason that I think about it from time to time is this. Let me set up a new kind of thing that isn't in the book. My book was optioned again and again and again and again. And I couldn't stand it. And I thought to myself, this past September, when the option was due, enough, I'm not renewing it. And I ended the option that these two young women had. They were successful and what have you. I won't go into that. And I decided to write a limited series myself. I wrote six episodes. I showed them to an old friend, Mike Metavoy, who is an Academy Award winning producer. I showed them, I showed the episodes to Scott Winant, who is a two time Emmy Award winning director. And they both said, I'm in. So now we will look for somebody to play Judy Garland, send somebody to play me for the pilot script. And we will pitch it and see whether or not it sells. And I'm not pre-associating. I have thought what you have asked me. Do people want to know the truth? Or do they want to maintain the Judy that was a part of their 
dream life. I ask myself that question now over and over again. Will there be an audience for what happened in my book? Or do people want to remember the Judy that you saw perform? Maybe tell me the answer for that. Well, we all have to realize that uh, everyone, I mean, she was a human being. And she had her good days and she had her bad days. And you saw uh, everything, warts and all. Uh, as I was reading your book, um, I got the sense of a real life person. Um, I wasn't there, but I believe your story. I believe that you're telling your truth. And that's why I said it at the beginning of my introduction, this is your story to tell. And I don't question your story to tell. Uh, I, you know, I know my own truth, you know your truth, and I respect that. And I believe that we live in a culture where, I mean, until uh, Harvey Weinstein, there were so many people that did not want to hear the truth. And people would say, this happened to me. And people would say, no, that didn't happen to you. Uh, Bill Cosby, I mean, look at what that man did and got away with for so many years. Because right. he was America's dad, uh, you know, we we put these icons uh, on pedestals. Um, I still love Judy Garland. My love of Judy has not changed since reading your book. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I I am terribly saddened uh, that she was as tragic as she was. Uh, that she had these issues. And uh, and I'm saddened that you uh, were uh, put through what you were put through, uh, because I, 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 that's why I asked, what got you through these episodes? Uh, as I was reading uh, about the Boston episode, uh, my skin was crawling. I, I can't even imagine uh, the nightmarish situation that you were put through, and how any person would do that uh, to another person and her lack of respect for you at that moment as well. However, the Boston incident was terrible. And there were things that were worse than that in which I thought I would lose my life. But it changed my life. I learned how not to fold. I learned that I could go on. I learned that I could be generous because of it. I learned that I could be understanding. I learned a whole lot about addicted people, which was a good thing because working in show business, she was not the only one that I met, nor the only one that I dealt with. There was nobody that was in as bad trouble as Judy was, but I became more sensitive, more understanding, more knowledgeable. I don't any longer, and for a long time, I have had no regrets whatsoever. And I also worked with as far as I'm concerned, the greatest entertainer in the world. Mm -hmm. 
What surprised you the most um, about yourself uh, having written this book? About myself? About yourself. Um, that I could endure anything. That having been through what I've been through, um, there was a certain amount of patience. I understood that I would never need to argue with anybody again. I understood that things don't work out the way you plan them. And then you make a new plan and there's no trouble doing that anymore. I learned how to be a tolerable grown up. I love that. Are you still writing? Uh, well, having written the six episode uh, series that I hope we will be able to soon pitch and sell, um, that was a big job. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had not written a streamer ever before. So I watched a number of things to try and learn what I had to do. And it ended up being um, a thrilling episode. I, I, I enjoyed it to the max. And I got extremely lucky because Mike Metavoy gave uh, the... Uh, series to two professional readers and the reviews came back they were wonderful i am i i'm kind of reluctant to say that on the screen talking about myself but you know one of the readers said this is what the audience is waiting for i love that <laughs> uh, well i love it too and again as i said at the beginning i love uh your uh, I'm going to use the word brutal honesty. Uh, and I love uh, anyone who is brave enough to tell their story. And everybody has stories to tell. Uh, and, uh, and I applaud you. Uh, you also said to me before we went live, uh, you know, if, uh, if we don't have a lot to talk about in the hour, uh, you'll, you'll pick up the space. This hour flew for me. I, you know, I can't believe how fast it's gone. Is this hour over? It's almost over. <laughs> oh, my. I mean, this is just... We haven't just... talked about Al Pacino. We haven't talked about Robert Redford. We haven't talked about David Bowie. We I know. you got to come back. we got to do... We've got to do a whole series. Uh, well, let's do this very quickly because we only have a few minutes left. Um, uh, let's do like a word association. I'm going to go into your book and I'm going to... Uh, well, one word uh, to, that you, pops into your head, the first word that pops into your head when I say Liza Minnelli. Peter Allen. Robert Redford. What? The first word that pops into your head when I say Robert Redford. Redford. Good friend. Paul Newman. I didn't hear you. Paul Newman. Great actor. Henry Fonda. Um, patient, also great. George Roy Hill. 
enormous fun. Bob Fosse. Sad. Oh, Cat Stevens. Unusual. David Bowie. Amazing. <laughs> Albert Poland. Great friend. Great, wonderful friend. Richard Skipper. Oh, new friend. I love it. Oh, Stevie, I'm in love with you. Albert, if you're watching, thank you, thank you, thank you. Don't go anywhere, Stevie. I'm going to give you the final word today. It could be about anything that we spoke about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message you want to leave everyone with. Everyone, you've got to get this book. Uh, it's amazing. You will not put it down. I couldn't put it down. And I went back and read some of these chapters two and three times because I couldn't believe what I was reading. Uh, Stevie, congratulations. I want to have you come back. And we'll talk about the other artists that you talk about in this book. It's just amazing. I want to thank everyone for being here. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. Um, I, and I'm going to be very honest here. I don't talk a lot about this, but I grew up in a household. My father was an alcoholic. And uh, the night before I left home, uh, my father, I left home when I was 18 years old. I have a show about my early years in uh, South Carolina. My father said, what makes you think that you can uh, make it in New York? And I said, you, if I can live through what I've lived through, I can live through anything. And I love uh, Stevie's fortitude and the fact that uh, she said that Judy told her uh, never to fold, that, you know, just keep going and uh, take these uh, opportunities and write about them share your stories with everyone. That's the message that I, that's the main message that I get from everything. Uh, Stevie is an amazing woman. And the more that I, I want to know more about you, I just can't get enough. Uh, but uh, I end every show by telling everyone to uh, go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Pick up the phone and call someone you have not spoken to in a long time. Uh, not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call. And let that person know that they've made a difference in your life. Uh, trust me, when you do so, it will make a difference in their life. I have a dear friend. He says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. Uh, Stevie, I'm going to give you the final word. Don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. And I hope that we are good friends, new friends, and I hope that you'll come back again. Uh, you truly are a delightful guest, and thank you for writing this book. Thank you. It's all yours. Well, I loved being able to do this show with you. It was a relief to be able to say these things to an audience. It's the first time that I've ever done that uh, in this kind of an interview, but it's kind of preparing me for the series because that's what comes next. Thank you so much, Richard.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.